Before we get into today's episode about the Delta variant, I'm joined by our producer Aoife Barry to discuss a little bit about something we love here at The Explainer. And we figure you probably do too if you're listening and well, it's podcasts. So hi Aoife. Hello, how's it going? So this week, the Reuters digital news report for 2021 was published, and it showed that a lot of people were turning to trusted and trustworthy online media during the pandemic. And we're really happy that the journal held on to a prime position as the most frequently used digital native source for the Irish news consumer. So thanks, everybody, for that. And we had a virtual celebration among our team. But we also learned some things about how Irish people tune into podcasts. So that's why I asked you on or we asked you on, Aoife, what can what did we learn about our love for podcasts? Yeah, we know from other reports that Irish people listen to a lot of both podcasts and radio shows. I'm sure you're the same as myself. We both love listening to stuff, whether it is on radio or podcasts from from across the world. But in this Reuters report, Ireland actually came out on top of the 20 countries that were surveyed. And 41% of people said they'd listened to a podcast in the past month. Now, that might not seem that big, but actually it's a really big number if you compare it to other countries. So if you look at Italy, just 31% of people said they'd listened to a podcast in the last month. If you go to Japan, and that number drops to 25%. So we really do love listening to podcasts in Ireland. And that number is surely just going to keep growing. Yeah, I think it's probably a throwback to we all grew up around the radio. You know, in my case, my granddad always had Radio 1 and the news beeps came on. So probably people are just taking that radio love and, you know, switching between radio and podcasts now. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know about you, but like if I'm doing really boring stuff like, you know, I don't know, changing the bed sheets or doing some work at home, I'll just put on a podcast. It's like soothing sometimes to hear somebody just chattering away in the background. Um, yeah, so the report also looked at the biggest reasons why people don't listen to podcasts and it found that those were format or then awareness and discovery. So essentially that means like where they can listen and then how they can find out in the first place that they should even like listen to a particular podcast. I mean, the world of podcasts is huge. So there's a huge amount there to pick from so we can understand that awareness and discovery issue. But on the first point, I'm here to make sure that all of you lovely listeners listening today know that if you have the journal app on your phone, which I hope you do, you can now actually listen to the explainer directly from that. So you don't need to click out or check anything else. It'll either appear in your feed of stories with a little play button when we publish the story or you'll find it under the podcasts tab which you'll find there on the app so if you're on the iphone you'll find that tab if you hit the more button on your journal app so if you want to just listen to us very easily go straight to the journal app these days yeah, I found it really helpful. Uh, probably most people who are listening from our sporting episodes know that I love a good sporting episode with the 42. And I've been listening to the 42s podcast through it and it does make it way handier. You can uh, click in and you can do anything else you want on your phone at the same time. Yeah, totally. And I found sometimes things can be a little bit slow in getting the podcast booted up. So it's actually great to just be, do, be able to do that straight away in the app. It's very quick. Um, and on the second point highlighted in the report, that's the awareness and discovery point. Many of our listeners will hear you, Sinead, at the end of our episodes, asking them to share the podcast, you know, with friends and family if you enjoyed it or found it useful. And the report really emphasizes that that really is an important thing that, you know, that finding particular shows that people do struggle to find them. So it's really good to let people know about new podcasts or episodes of podcasts that they might be interested in. So that kind of awareness and discovery thing, that's the reason why we get you to do that shout out at the end of the podcast every week. Yeah, and honestly, taking two minutes to, if you do listen to us every week or or regularly, if you do have time to just give us a rating in the, in the, in the podcast stores and, and a review, if you have time, that is really something that absolutely helps us. We're at a 4.5 star rating in the Apple iTunes, for example. So getting us to a five would be amazing. Aoife, thanks so much for bringing all of that to us and for joining us today. But we're going to get on with the podcast now. 
Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what do we know right now about the Delta variant? The Delta variant has been the talking point of the last few weeks, and that's a really unfortunate thing, obviously, for all of us, as Ireland is preparing to reopen more on the 5th of July. Will this plan now be in tatters as the Delta variant continues to worry health authorities both here and across Europe? What can we learn from England? Is this now a race between Delta and the vaccines? To talk us through what we know so far and what we need to watch out for, we have two of our COVID experts back with us at The Explainer. Assistant Professor of Virology at Trinity College Dublin, Kim Roberts, is here with our very own senior reporter, Michelle Hennessy. Thanks guys both so much for joining us. Michelle, I'm going to turn to you first. The Delta variant and the Indian variant, they're one and the same thing, correct? Yeah, that's right. So the Delta variant was first identified in India and it was initially referred to as the Indian variant. It's also known as B1617.2, but it's not really practical to keep calling it B1617.2 <laughs> in every conversation we have. Um, so earlier this month, the World Health Organization, they introduced a, a new naming system for variants of concern. And this was, like I was saying, to help simplify the discussion around them, but it was also to prevent stigma being attached to any geographic group. So they're using the Greek alphabet for the labels. Uh, the variant that we first saw in Ireland at Christmas, b one which is also known as the Kent variant because it was first identified there. That's now called the Alpha variant. Uh, and then we have the variant first identified in South Africa is the Beta variant. Uh, the one first identified in Brazil is the Gamma variant. Those are the four now, uh, the four variants of concern at the moment. And that's how they'll continue to be labelled going forward. Yeah, because obviously there are lots and lots of variants, but there's only a certain amount of variants of concern. What was the first indication that the Delta one would make that category? Yeah, well, this variant, it was first reported in by India in October last year, but it was really in March and April that things started to shift there and India started to experience another big spike in cases. Experts there were noting that it was better at spreading. There were also fears that it could be dodging some of the vaccine protections. And in April, the WHO designated it as a variant of interest. So it's really the WHO saying that's one to watch. At that stage, it was already in at least 17 countries across the globe. And then by late April in India, they were seeing 350,000 new cases per day or more on some days and thousands of deaths. I mean, people will remember the, the media coverage from around that time. The hospitals and the crematoriums were totally overwhelmed. And it was then in late April that we saw other countries sending medical equipment to Indian hospitals, including uh, the Irish Health Services. The HSE sent 700 oxygen concentrators over, uh, you know, as, as some kind of a help for how overwhelmed they were. And this variant was becoming the dominant one in the worst hit areas in India at that time. So it was then on the 11th of May, the WHO designated it as a variant of concern. Now, the criteria for this designation that includes uh, an increase in transmissibility, so it spreads better, an increase in virulence, so it causes more severe disease, and a decrease in effectiveness of vaccines or therapeutics. And Delta is really ticking these boxes. Uh, and that's how they, they designated a variant of concern. So you can see, even though it was a reported quite early on in, in India, it really escalated quite quickly over a, a small period of time. Uh, and it was, you know, April, it was it was a one to watch. And then by early May, it was this variant of concern. Yeah. And then obviously we start hearing reports from our neighbours in the UK. So you've talked there about, you know, the India's massive surge, but what's the situation currently facing England? 
Yeah, so in England, the Delta variant um, is now the dominant variant in England and case numbers there have been rising really rapidly. They've had more than 75,000 cases of the Delta variant and the most recent daily figure for new cases was above 16,000 cases. That was just in one day. The Delta variant represents about 99% of the sequence cases there. And if we just look at the data um, from this week of the 315 local areas in England, 85% have seen a rise in COVID rates. We're seeing this translate into hospitalizations. So this week, the number of COVID-19 patients in the UK rose to its highest level for nearly two months. But the figures are still well below those that were recorded at the peak of the second wave. And we're not seeing a big surge in deaths, even though we are seeing an increase in hospitalizations. Um, now, from the situation in England, it does appear that the vaccines are making a difference with this wave. The majority of the cases are in people who were unvaccinated and they're seeing the highest levels among young adults and older teens. So you wrote a piece last week which talked about how Ireland was keeping the Delta variant at bay. And obviously a lot changes in coronavirus uh, news in, a, in the space of a week. What has this week seen in Ireland and what have Neffet been saying about it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's sort of like what I was saying with the situation in India is that, you know, you're sort of trucking along for a while and, and you're you're saying we'll keep an eye on this. And then all of a sudden it becomes a big problem. And that's what seems to be ha- happening here or, or what might happen in, in the future here. Um, so the chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Houlihan, warned that this variant is becoming more prevalent. Uh, the alpha variant, which we spoke about earlier, which first appeared here just before Christmas, has been the dominant variant all the way through. Now, that is still the case. It is still the dominant variant but the Delta variant accounted for 20% of last week's cases. And Dr. Houlihan said he's concerned about this increase uh, and public health officials had also seen a number of outbreaks associated with the variant in the previous week. So we had before this seen more individual cases. Lots of them were related to travel and then close contact. So maybe somebody who had travelled into Ireland who had it and then somebody that they lived with or were staying with got it from them. Now we're seeing whole outbreaks or clusters associated with it. And the HSE is investigating one particular uh, suspected outbreak associated with this variant in Athlone. They haven't officially confirmed this now by the whole genome sequencing, but it is suspected to be the Delta variant. And the Department of Public Health in the Midlands said cases are associated with socialising on the west side of the river on the 11th of June. It's actually unusual for us to get this level of detail about an an outbreak. So you can tell that there is a lot of concern about that. The HSE said it's not exactly clear how transmission occurred. It might have been that social distancing wasn't adhered to. But they also said there were reports of house parties that night uh, and they're urging anyone who, who was in the area at the time and who's now showing symptoms to get a test. Yeah, it's obviously very worrying when we talk about wanting to open up fully in, a, in a, just a couple of weeks time. Do we know much about what's happening in Northern Ireland? Because obviously it's in the it's in the UK. It's very much prevalent in England. What's happening in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I mean, it's happening in Northern Ireland as well. About 50% of their COVID cases are now linked to the Delta variant and it is expected to become the dominant variant by the end of this month. So if you think about that, you know, we're we're almost at the end of the month. That's how quickly they're expecting it to become the dominant variant. There have been over 600 confirmed or probable cases of Delta in Northern Ireland. And last week they reported the highest daily total uh, COVID cases in more than 100 days. Now that's not translating into hospitalizations yet or deaths, uh, but there have in particular been spikes in Derry and Straban. They're seeing outbreaks there. And the most recent outbreak report uh, for Northern Ireland put the number of clusters at 48 over a four week period. Now that was up to the 6th of June. So we'll have to wait for another a more recent report. Uh, I'd expect that to go up. Most of those outbreaks were in workplaces.
And is there anywhere else that we can look to for data or information about the Delta variant? Is there any any other cities or countries that are experiencing this kind of change in, in what's the dominant variant? Yeah, we're seeing in a few other places. So the Portuguese capital, Lisbon, has seen a surge. 60% of new cases there were Delta. And four days in a row, they were reporting more than a thousand new cases of COVID nationally. They're trying now to cut down on any further spread of the virus. So all weekend travel in and out of Lisbon was banned, for example. We're also seeing a tightening of restrictions in Indonesia following an increase in COVID infections fueled by the Delta variant. And the health system there is under fairly in, in, intense pressure at the moment. Um, in one day this week, they recorded more than 14,000 new cases. And the test positivity rate, this is very telling, is 41.1%. That's really, very high. In Australia, they're also seeing a rise, but their numbers are very small for the moment. So new restrictions are being introduced. They're being very cautious. New restrictions are being introduced in Greater Sydney to curb the spread. I actually think what's really interesting about Australia, I think because the numbers are small, they're able to look at them in a lot more detail. And it's a bit frightening, I suppose, to see the way in which people are actually catching it. So in one case, a man walked through the same space as an infected person. Uh, In another case, a woman was sitting outside a cafe when an infected person was inside. So this is giving us early indicators uh, of just how transmissible it has been. Yeah, Kim, that is kind of scary. You might be able to answer how much more contagious the Delta variant is compared to the COVID that arrived in Ireland in late February 2020. So I think the first thing to really say is that there's a lot of uncertainty um, around this. It's a very dynamic time. Data are being collected and analysed, you know, on a daily basis. And so there's uncertainty around the estimates of how the Delta variant is behaving. The current estimates are that the Delta variant is 40 to 60 percent more transmissible than the Alpha variant. So that's actually the variant that arrived in Ireland um, around Christmas time. And to put that in a bit more perspective, the alpha variant is thought to have been about 40% more transmissible than the original variants that arrived in in Ireland in March 2020. So you can see that this virus is is getting more contagious, more transmissible as it evolves and adapts to people. Does that have implications for outdoor transmission? Because obviously we've been told outdoor is much safer. There's been a lot of activity outdoor in recent weeks. Do we know yet um, how the Delta variant behaves outside? We don't have a lot of strong information. But as as you were just saying, when we're looking at at Australia, for example, who are doing very in-depth analysis of of where transmission chains are occurring and how they're occurring, there is suggestion that um, the Delta variant can be transmitted to people over very short periods of time, both indoors and outdoors. But remember that that's when people are not wearing masks. And I think that's one of the key things to remember is that we do have very strong ways of of reducing transmission and those are still effective. So I think overall, the risk of outdoor transmission is still much, much lower than the risk of indoor transmission. But people need to be aware that um, when meeting with people outdoors, it's not a no risk situation and that it is really important to to keep distance from people and also to wear masks. Yeah, I think that's been the difficult thing, even myself, like really good at social distancing, but that initial, like people are kind of getting used to hugging again and you kind of have to make sure like, no, we're not doing that yet, just yet. Um, One of the other big factors that has obviously changed since both the original COVID uh, arrived in late February and the alpha one in December is that we have 
you know, a lot more people vaccinated and a lot more access to, to COVID vaccines. Do we know much about the COVID protection from the vaccines that we are currently using in Ireland against the Delta variant? So again, the data is evolving. And so some of these are, are soft numbers that, that are likely to change as, as more information becomes available. But risk assessments are, are suggesting that roughly after one dose of a vaccine, there's a 15 to 20 percent reduction in the vaccine effectiveness against the Delta variant when compared with the Alpha variant. So after one dose of the vaccine, it doesn't provide as much protection um, against the Delta variant than it would against the Alpha variant. When it comes to people who are fully vaccinated, so those people who have had both doses of a vaccine and waited the, the two weeks after that second dose of the vaccine, the vaccine effectiveness is, is good and it's high. Um, and, and so, again, the messaging really is about people getting the vaccine as soon as it's offered and making sure that they get that, that second dose as well. And that that people remain cautious and use those transmission intervention methods even if they've had one dose of the vaccine, even for a few weeks after they've had that second dose of the vaccine and not to let down the guard too early. Michelle, when we're talking about the reduced efficacy of vaccines, it's mostly around infection rather than severe illness, right? Yeah, that's right. So according to data published by Public Health England and Public Health Scotland, both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccines offer significantly less protection against infection with the Delta variant compared to previous variants after just one dose. So with AstraZeneca, it's 30%. With Pfizer, it's 36% after one dose. Uh, but one dose, it still does offer good protection against hospitalisation. So with AstraZeneca, it's at least 71%. And with Pfizer, it's at least 94%. And um, th the data also shows that vaccination with Pfizer and AstraZeneca is almost as effective at preventing hospitalisation in the case of the Delta variant as it is in the case of the Alpha variant, which is our dominant variant at the moment. Uh, so two doses of the Pfizer jab prevent 96% of hospitalisations due to the Delta variant and AstraZeneca prevents 92%. So that's still really quite high. And that's according to a study involving 14,000 people that was done by Public Health England. For Moderna, it's believed to be similar to Pfizer in terms of efficacy. Uh, and for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, remember you're fully vaccinated after one dose with that. We don't really have real world data on that yet, but there's nothing to suggest that it wouldn't provide similar protection. Um, so really what we see with the vaccines is that Yes, people might still get the virus uh, and even that is less likely. But if you do, it's much less likely to make you very sick, requiring hospitalisation if you've had those two doses. And when you're talking about efficacy, you're talking about protection against severe illness. Exactly. The aim of the vaccines really and how we're using them is to reduce the number of people who have severe COVID-19 and who need hospital treatment. So the the vaccines are working from that respect and, and for for changing and breaking the link between the number of um, infections that we have going in the, and the surge of people going into hospital but people can still um, become infected if they've been vaccinated again um, i mean looking at the uh, at some of the recent data from um, from the uk the percentage of people um, who were getting new infections who had been fully vaccinated, so that's two doses plus two weeks, was about 8% of the overall infections. So that's a, a good low number, um, but people just need to be aware that being fully vaccinated doesn't reduce all of the risk, um, and so we still need to be cautious. And when we say that people can get sick, you know, they can still feel severely sick for a week or two, 
Um, it's not just a cold that, that you're going to kind of brush off pretty quickly. But it's but what the vaccines are doing is they are reducing the, the number of people who are going into hospital. We've often heard uh, people saying that the Pfizer and Moderna, the mRNA vaccines are kind of the gold standard. But is there much of a difference in terms of how effective they are compared with, say, AstraZeneca after two doses. So if you have two doses of AstraZeneca and you have two doses of Pfizer, are they pretty similar in terms of how they protect against the Delta variant? Absolutely. In terms of the overall reduction of risk of ending up in hospital, the vaccines, whichever type of vaccine you have, they're having that that positive effect and, and reducing the risk of ending up in hospital. Obviously, there are there are differences between the vaccines in terms of their schedule and how quickly we can get people vaccinated. Um, and that's one of the, the races that, that's ongoing at the moment. Um, but all of the vaccines are working. So whichever vaccine you are offered, um, that is going to give you some protection once you've had both what sorry once you've had both doses and you've waited the the two weeks afterwards yeah because particularly with the delta variant one dose is less effective absolutely in terms of transmission do we know if vaccines prevent transmission of the virus or what is the information we have at the moment that data isn't really um being captured at the moment i think that's some of the questions that are being asked and we'll see more data coming over the next few weeks We'll get more data about how symptomatic people are after they've, they've been vaccinated and, and how effective the vaccine is at, at just overall reducing the severity of disease and, and symptoms, not just putting people into hospital. But we don't really have good data for that at the moment. So I think, you know, really the message is about being cautious and keeping up with all of those transmission um, interventions just to reduce the risk at the moment. In people who are unvaccinated, does the Delta variant cause more severe illness than the Alpha variant did? So this is another area where the information is is quite soft at the moment. It's unclear. There is some evidence that suggests that the Delta variant could be two times a greater risk of, of being severe and, and people going into hospital if they're unvaccinated. But we don't have good solid uh, data for that yet. So that's another kind of watch this space area. One of the one of the, the issues that makes this more complicated is, of course, you've got different proportions of people in different age groups who are vaccinated, who are partially vaccinated. You, you're looking at people who have previously been exposed to a natural infection. You're looking at um, the, the differences between people who are um, still at risk of more severe disease because they have other um, medical challenges going on as well. So it's quite a complicated picture to try and, um, and understand. There's there's one phrase that I know probably annoys some virologists, but this is often referred to as a double mutant of the coronavirus. Is that accurate? Um, oh, so yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. It's one of those things as a virologist that I kind of go, oh, what do we mean by this? Usually when we're talking about double mutants, what we're talking about is that there are two main characteristics that affect the risk assessment parameters that have changed. But that doesn't mean that there are just two mutations genetically. So when we think about the Delta variant, it's, it's sometimes called a double mutant because there are genetic changes that affect how infectious it is, how it transmits, and there are also genetic changes um, that affect how our antibodies bind to the virus. So, and our antibodies are one of the key players that block infection. 
So people call it the double mutant because of those two parameters. But in terms of actual mutations, the Delta variant has about 20 different mutations that are used to characterize it as the Delta variant. And th those are the, the sort of 20 mutations that make it characteristically different to, to other variants. And of course, an individual virus particle could have more mutations than that, or a few less mutations than that. Viruses have really dynamic genomes and mutate um, pretty rapidly. You know, we are seeing the evolution of this virus in, in real time. So that's why kind of calling it a double mutant isn't particularly helpful. And you might have also heard in the, the press um, of a variant called uh, Delta Plus. Um, and, and of course, that, that kind of gets more complicated as well. And the Delta Plus variant has an additional mutation, which again, um, which changes again how antibodies um, bind to the virus. So this is why naming viruses gets very complicated very quickly. Yeah, but the press obviously love being able to use things other than the B.167, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, it, and it's really difficult to, to keep track of these things and also the biological relevance. You know, I mean, in the end, when we call it a double mutant, it's because of the biological relevance of it's changed its infectiousness, how it transmits, and it's also changed how our immune response sees the virus. So there is a logic to it. It's just... It, it, it just makes me twitch a little bit as a molecular virologist. <laughs> we'll give Kim a break there, Michelle, and just turn to you. Just to, if you could explain a little bit more about what the Delta Plus variant is. Yeah, I'll take over from the virologist and explain what, what the Delta <laughs> variant is. Uh, Delta Plus, it, I mean, it is the Delta variant, but it, it, with a, my understanding is it with a mutation in the spike protein of the virus. I'm going to annoy Kim and call it uh, the triple mutant from now on rather than, than Del, Delta Plus. Um, but at the moment, it only represents a very small proportion of the sequence cases so far. It's around 160 globally, and there are 41 in the UK. Now, there are some suggestions that it might evade protection from vaccines, but with these kinds of small numbers, it's always hard to be definitive about that. We also don't know yet whether it's more transmissible than Delta or if it leads to more hospital ad admissions or deaths. But I mean, we've talked on this podcast before about the fact that it, it's not unusual to have mutations with the virus. We're going to see more variants. That That's just going to happen. Um, it really becomes a, a concern when you see it in lots of countries, when you see uh, larger numbers, when you see it growing quite rapidly. And we're not seeing that with Delta Plus at the moment. So let's turn back to what we are seeing in Ireland right now. How many cases of the Delta variant have we actually recorded here and how are they handled and what's changed in the last week? Yeah, so we had been seeing small numbers uh, up until last week. There were 180 cases and 5% of the sequence cases were Delta. Now, th there had been an increase in cases associated with Delta in the Dublin region and that was being monitored. But like I was saying earlier, a large cohort were travel related and that's why the focus was really on keeping Delta out rather than any enhanced public health me measures or restrictions nationally or locally. Now, the government last week agreed to tighter travel restrictions on arrivals from Britain into Ireland. So people who aren't fully vaccinated have to self-quarantine for 14 days after they arrive. And this includes people who travel into Ireland via Northern Ireland. This period, they it, it can be reduced uh, to 10 days if they get two negative PCR tests. So that's day five and day 10. But even fully vaccinated people arriving into Ireland 
coming from Britain have to self-quarantine for five days and they also have to get a negative PCR test result on their fifth day in order to end that quarantine after the five days. I mean, what's changed now is that the proportion of cases identified as Delta has jumped. So 20% of last week's cases were attributed to the variant. And once you start getting to that level, it's likely that that's going to increase quite quickly. Uh, I'd be very surprised if it, if it didn't become the dominant variant here. And this is why we're now hearing particular concern from public health officials. Kim, when we're talking about how many cases of the Delta variant we have in Ireland, how, do, how do, have we gone about actually identifying which of our cases are Delta variant? I know uh, Michelle mentioned genome sequencing earlier. Is that how we do it? Can you explain what it is uh, and how effective we are at it right now? Sure. So there are key mutations that characterize the, the variants, and those are located in the, the S gene. And that's the bit that encodes the spike protein. The spike protein is the bit that on the virus that binds to the cell surface and gets the virus into the cell. So that's why that has an impact on the infectiousness or the transmissibility of the virus. And the spike protein is also the main target for antibodies. So that part of your immune response that again blocks infection. And the, the S gene is one of those genes that is more flexible and is picking up more mutations that are biologically relevant and affect transmission and disease. Um, as this virus is, is evolving. So the way that we, um, that we test if somebody is infected um, with SARS-CoV-2 um, by the PCR test is that the, the sample is taken and a couple of different parts of the virus genome are tested in that PCR test and are amplified up. One part is very stable and that um, doesn't really change much as the virus is evolving. And that PCR will say if the, the sample is positive for virus or not. The other part of the genome that gets amplified is the, the S gene. And at the moment, we're testing for the alpha S gene specifically. And so if a sample turns up positive for virus, but negative for the S gene, that then indicates that a different variant is in that patient's sample. So it's not the alpha variant that is currently dominant. When that happens, it's my understanding that at the moment, those samples are then being sent on to be sequenced so that their full genetic code can be read and the, the virus variant in that sample can be characterized. Unfortunately, um, that extra piece of analysis, that reading of, of the genome and characterizing which variant it is, um, is, is well, it was recently reported in, in, in the RTE that, um, that that extra analysis is taking about three weeks. So that means there is a delay in getting this information to public health doctors who are managing outbreaks, and there's a delay in the building of information about um, the spread of Delta variant and the change in proportion of, of Delta variant that we're seeing. But without that specific data, samples that are positive for virus but SG negative are currently um, classed as suspected as being Delta variant. And could you explain just to our listeners what exactly whole genome sequencing is? What happens in the lab, for instance? So, I mean, really what you're talking about is we have the technology to, at a genetic level, be able to see the full blueprint of the virus and the genome of the virus. And so we can uh, identify any mutation that is in that virus sample and compare it to, to, to the, the standard genome of, um, 
of the virus. And that's how we detect different variants. That three week uh, time frame that you're talking about there, is there any way that Ireland can speed up that process so that we actually have more real time data about how much of the Delta variant is here? I think that's absolutely one of the goals. I mean, as I've said, I'm not involved in in the virus testing process, but logistically it's quite difficult. The technology exists to genetically sequence the virus genome in 48 to 72 hours. So technologically we can do that, but it's my understanding that there are logistical problems in moving the samples to the sequencing labs. So most of the virus testing labs don't have the full capability. They don't have the technology, the machines in house to be able to fully sequence the virus genome. Um, And of course, then there's time to analyze that genome and and, and make sense of what what that blueprint is telling us. we know if we we look to other countries and how they've set up systems that it is possible to speed it up but there are logistical hurdles that that need to be overcome and and so it's it's not straightforward now none of this has been straightforward since february 2020 michelle what has the government said about how delta could impact plans for us to reopen say on the 5th of july restaurants are due to open pubs are due to open indoors yeah well I mean, what a difference a week makes. Isn't that always the way now in covering this story? Uh, just this week, Taoiseach Michal Martin said the next phase of reopening could be delayed until later in July. I mean, this time last week, that wouldn't have even really been a question. As you said, that the 5th of July is the planned reopening of indoor hospitality, and that would see also an increase in numbers allowed to mix indoors in households, increased numbers at weddings and then larger outdoor and indoor gatherings. Michal Martin said the resumption of foreign travel from the 19th of July might also only apply to those who are fully vaccinated. So this is a, a kind of a, a big shift uh, in in the, the sort of conversation from government to, you know, this week, at this time last week or, or two weeks ago when, you know, it is sort of full steam ahead. And ministers who've been out and about have kind of been downplaying those comments from the Taoiseach saying it's, you know, it's too early to say now. But the 5th of July is fast approaching. Um, They've said a final call will be made in in the days beforehand. Um, This week, we also had the EU's health agency, the ECDC, warning that any significant easing of restrictions will lead to an autumn surge. And I think that advice, which, you know, came at a very convenient moment uh, around the same time as, as the Taoiseach's comments, that coming from Europe and not just our own public health officials, not just coming from NEFIT, I think that's going to be hard for the government to ignore. Yeah, and obviously England has had to change its plans as well. What What's the current situation there in terms of its reopening or Freedom Day as they had dubbed it? So the, the 21st of June was supposed to see the end of the social distancing rules and the full lifting of the restrictions in England. That's now been delayed for four weeks to the 19th of July. And there was a, ba- a massive backlash within Boris Johnson's own Conservative Party at the time. You know, it was, it was a big blow to hospitality businesses in particular, and it was a controversial move. Uh, and the government there has said that something unprecedented and remarkable would have to happen for this day to be pushed back again. They're hoping to be able to increase vaccination rates enough that it'll be safe to reopen fully at that stage. And there has been a real drive in England to vaccinate as many people as possible. So at the weekend, they ran a vaccination Super Saturday, they called it. They were using stadiums and football grounds as mass vaccination centres, and they were offering all adults over the age of 18 a jab. And there was a big demand. I mean, people might have seen there were pictures of of huge queues. They vaccinated thousands of people. I mean, if that is successful, they might still be able to go ahead with this um, because we've already seen in England, there's good data on how effective the vaccines have been in 
in keeping people out of hospital and pre preventing that kind of severe disease that we would have seen in earlier waves. But the trend with reopenings, as we've seen here ourselves, is that if there's going to be a spanner in the works, it only tends to become apparent a bit closer to the reopening dates. So, you know, we'll, we'll just have to keep an eye on that. Yeah, Kim, is it just inevitable that the Delta variant will become the dominant one here as well? I think, unfortunately, yes, it is. The latest ECDC risk assessment has predicted that by early August, 70% of new infections across Europe will be the Delta variant and that this will rise to 90% of new infections by the end of August. You know, there'll be a variation in these patterns between countries because that's largely determined by the levels of transmission interventions that are in place. But if, as we ease any of those interventions, we are creating more opportunities for transmission to take place. And unfortunately, if you've got a very transmissible virus, then giving it space to transmit by easing some of those restrictions can let the virus take off and become very widespread very, very quickly. So I, I think there are some very difficult decisions that are going to have to be made over, over the next few weeks as to our own um, schedule of, of, of reopening and, and easing of restrictions, bearing in mind that one of those easing of restrictions is, of course, increasing um, the availability of indoor dining and socialising indoors. And that's why one of the biggest risk of risks of transmission um, occurs, especially if we we're not prioritising the importance of ventilation and um, opening windows, opening doors, making sure that there's um, good airflow, particularly of spaces where people aren't wearing masks. So if we do, and we will get to this, the point that this variant becomes dominant, will people who are unvaccinated or just partially vaccinated have to treat themselves like they don't have that vaccine bonus, that they will have to be more careful and maybe not uh, partake in some of the things that might be available to them, like outdoor indoor dining? It'll be very interesting to see, um, to, to see what decisions are made in terms of allowing different people to to interact in different ways, whether or not they're vaccinated or not vaccinated, and how we monitor that and how we we make sure that 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 it's not just people are keeping themselves safe, but that people are able to keep other people safe, particularly in scenarios where masks are not um, available or not being worn. So, you know, indoor dining where you can't be wearing a mask whilst you're eating and drinking. Um, and it's going to be a, a very fine balancing act. And of course, you know, there are lots of things to play in play um, when we're thinking about this. And one of the things that, that I keep on hearing is, but, is about how our current numbers are very low and they are very low. But the concern is that with this new Delta variant, we could get an increase in numbers of infected people very, very rapidly and that it could get out of control very rapidly and we're back to having to to reinduce reintroduce um, transmission interventions so the the decisions over the next few weeks are, um, are going to be critical in in how quickly we allow delta variant to spread through the country and obviously the other hugely critical thing is the vaccination rollout michelle let's end on hopefully a positive note how is that going in ireland at the moment yeah so we are having some positive news in terms of vaccines now the exact figures we're not getting them as regularly as we were before the cyber attack. That's still causing disruption. Uh, but we, according to the most recent figures, we are making good progress. Roughly 60% of the eligible population now have one dose. That's more than 2.3 million people. 
Now, that's not up much on last week, but the number of people fully vaccinated is increasing now at almost 36% of the eligible population, and that's up 6% on last week. So that's quite a jump. And as we've heard on this podcast before, it's that second dose that makes all the difference. And we're at 60% with the first doses. So people will be familiar with this target of 80% of the eligible population with one dose by the end of June. It's been well flagged now that we're not going to get there by then, but the government is still confident of having 70% of the population fully vaccinated by the end of July. So we're getting there slowly but surely. As someone in their mid-30s, I am very excited about getting that text whenever I do get it. Thank you, Michelle, for bringing us up to speed on everything vaccine, everything variant. And Kim, thank you so much again for joining us. And really, we put you through your paces today with all those questions about the, about the variants and genome sequencing, etc. So thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jade. Thank you very much. It's been good fun. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Kim and Michelle for joining us today. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. As you heard me and Aoife discuss at the start of this episode, if you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, but you can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people discover, listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.